William Shakespeare is known for writing many different styles of plays. He did tragedy, he did comedy, he did tragedy mixed with comedy. But he never did science fiction. From the mind of Rob Lloyd and the pen of Keith Gow comes a play that aims to fix that. Shakespeare Aliens. It's James Cameron's Aliens, live on stage in the style of William Shakespeare. After a hit run of shows during the start of the year, we're back this October for the Melbourne Fringe Festival. Join us for an hour of action, tension and puppetry as our cast of characters try to escape the horrors of LV426. Shakespeare Aliens at the Melbourne Fringe Festival. That's October 11th to October 15th, 9pm at Gasworks Theatre. Head to melbournefringe.com.au for more, or check out the link in the episode description. This is Subspace Radio, and I am Rob. Hailing frequencies, Oaken. Rob, it's Kev here. Good to see you. We're here to talk about the latest episode of Star Trek that is out there in the ether, and it is Season 3, Episode 4 of Lower Decks, Room for Growth. That title already sounds dirty to me. <laughs> yes. Our, our listeners will have probably glanced at their episode list and seen that the topic of today is sex in Star Trek. So welcome. Welcome to whatever this is going to be. It is a red letter day. It is a red banner day. It is a... It's a red something. It's red tube. It's all tied into one. Yes, finally... I got a positive affirmation from Kevin Yank in our notes. He just put, okay, fine. Yes. They did it. Last week I said, Lord X, you know what you have to do. And they did it. And they brought it so hardcore in this episode. Finally, I have been so patiently waiting for this. And I assume you have been as well, listeners. I'm sure, Kevin, you have spent long, long hours, long evenings. So lying- long. You can't imagine how long. (laughs) Oh, I can have a vague idea. But before we move on to this hot and spicy topic, let's have a look at Room for Growth, an episode involving an A and B plot, as always. And so Rutherford was sent off with the entire engineering crew after yet another uh, disastrous possession. Those old things. Yes, the captain has been possessed by an ancient mask. An ancient mask situation. Yes, Have you seen that episode of Star Trek The Next Generation that that was referencing? I had not. Not surprised. (laughs) It is not the most memorable one. We're talking Season 7, Episode 17, Masks. I don't mind it. For the the very trail end of TNG, where they were scraping the bottom of the barrel for ideas, before they they hit the high points of all good things, they went through a couple of weaker episodes like Masks. There's certain cliched episodes you need to have within a sci-fi show. So there's always the body swap episode. There's always the sexy episode. There's always an episode where a mask is involved in some sort of way, shape or form. This episode almost made my list of mixing it up episodes when we talked a a little while back of cases where characters became possessed or played another character. Yes. In Masks, Commander Data puts on a mask and becomes this god who Uh is uh, rebuilding the ship. And Picard manages to, at the last minute, find another mask in the library computer and put it on and talk Data down by role-playing 
another god in their mythos. So much theater. Data was the god of the sun, so Picard came in as the god of the moon and said, it's time to go to sleep, son. It's as dramatic as it sounds. I don't know what you're talking about. That sounds like 45 minutes of pure Star Trek gold. I don't hate it, but uh, <laughs> not not everyone's favorite episode. Room for Growth, I'm seeing framed as a show about nothing. I've seen a few people compare it to an episode of Seinfeld, where nothing big or monumental happens. This is a character sitcom episode. Yeah, leaning into the sitcom-y type of comedy elements of it, and all those big sweeping science fiction elements are put on hold. And it is pretty much just a social relationship thing, the antagonization between the Delta and the Beta teams there. That's a very sitcom-y type thing to do. And we're here to relax and we can't relax because we're engineers. And having the, I'm jumping ahead to the ending, and to have an ending where our heroes don't win is very much out of... That's very Seinfeld. Well, you've got a good sitcom where you let your characters fail. They reveal all their fatal flaws and they all fail because of it, but at least they're stuck in it together at the end. And the twist where they think they've learned a lesson, but then they're actually betrayed. I'm wondering if we ever see Delta Shift again, because at the moment where they were making nice in the swamp below hydroponics, waiting for the door to open, and they were becoming friends, I was like, oh, this is a nice way to end the Delta Shift epic and then Delphi Ship says snooze you lose and runs through the door and I'm like oh does that mean it's back on or is that just a button on the end of the story and we've actually done everything there is to do with Delta Ship yeah I mean the Delta Ship trio were quite unremarkable in the way of characters they are literally palette swapped versions of our main characters that's the gag yeah and but not even in a heightened way or type of (laughs) exaggerated way but yeah and they have like odd tropes that would only appear in like a sitcom or a comedy things like they start tripping balls i'm in an egg i don't want to hatch that was a beautiful moment and i fell a little bit in love with mariner then Oh, she's brought you completely around. Just the moment how vulnerable she was when Tendy goes, look, I'm sorry I got you out of your egg. And then Mariner's there going, it was so warm in there. And I went, oh, that's beautiful. The wrinkled chin thing. That is amazing that they brought that out uh, in this kind of animation. Yes, I'm pretty much on the Mariner starship now. It was a beautiful moment. I also noticed that the references have started to shift from references to Star Trek canon into references to Lower Decks canon. Yes. And that, yeah, that's always a good shift when you're, we've created your own Yeah, your own bubble. Your own Uh, bubble. I don't think they'll ever get away from that entirely, but when they come into the swamp and hydroponics, did you see the little skeleton stuck beneath the branches? That was a dead Dupler from the episode An Embarrassment of Duplers in season two, episode five. Oh, God. The ship got overtaken by all of those replicating life forms. Yes. That was one of them stuck under there. I had to look it up. I can't take credit for knowing that at a glance. But yeah, the sight gags, the references, like last episode, someone said shenanigans, and then there was immediately a pile of references to previous episodes. Yes. I I love that this show is standing on its own two feet. Definitely, yeah. I don't need this to be the show of references. So, yeah, we've talked about it, but we haven't said whether, did you enjoy this episode? Oh, yeah, I love this. I love this episode for the fact, if we had not already talked about what a stereotypical Lower Decks episode is, I might this week be making the argument for this being one of it. Earlier in the season, we said the stereotypical thing that stood out to us about Grounded was that 
something big and momentous happened off screen while our characters were here in the background and we stayed in the background with them while that went on. This episode did something I would argue might be even more stereotypically Lower Decks. It told a story in the quiet moments, the mundane moments, the most of the time in which nothing exciting happens on a starship. And it's very much the case of the Cali-class ship is the Lower Mm. Deck of the Mm. Federation. So we've been dealing with the Lower Decks on a ship like with Boindler and Mariner. But this was an episode where not even the Cali class are at that higher level. So even Mm. the captain's dealing with mundane stuff like her engineers just won't take a break. So it was very much the ultimate sitcom sci-fi. So it's what I love about Red Dwarf is like just, you know, scumbags in space. You know, they're the lower echelon of humanity, let alone sci-fi tropes, which for me is always endearing. I always, the American style of sitcom is always about who's the quickest wit, who's the smartest, who's the most attractive, where comedy for me, I much prefer that more relatable sense of struggling and how sometimes you don't get everything your way. The story of the engineers being told to relax is, on the one hand, I think it's perhaps the weaker part of this episode, just in pure entertainment value, but It does tell, I would say, an insightful story about burnout. Like, the way to treat burnout is not to take away the thing that gives someone a purpose for showing up to work. And it did supply two of my favorite gags as well. So when the captain screams at one of the engineers, shut up, Meredith! (laughs) And also later when Rutherford finally comes in with all the engineering crew and goes, stop right now what you're doing! And the dog the puppy looks at it and he goes, oh, no, not you, little puppy. Keep on pupping. <laughs> so let's talk sex. Look, not mm. only do we have the subtle attempt, but it's still a little bit of objectification of two of our female crew members. Yeah, um, not sex, just maybe sexualization. Sexualization. Not actual sex. Not I se- think yeah. there is and there's salute. interesting stuff to say about actual sex in Star Trek. Yeah, there was, of course, the reveal of Ransom's kink. Kink or survival technique for what sounds like a very traumatic episode in the show about Ransom that we haven't seen. You're very beautiful, Kevin. I like how you... No no kink shaming here, okay? let's. No, I am not judging him for his churro wife. And that's what I... I say it's a kink. You say it's a way of dealing with trauma. And I really enjoy that, that we've created this safe environment. Horses for courses. Exactly. But yes, uh, is it Trilivia? Churro Olivia. Churro Olivia. Yeah, hilarious. Yeah. But the big thing is we had the entire holodeck fantasy of our doctor and our chief of security. To Anna and Shax, they have been the in the margins, will they, won't they recurring story for a while now. We've yes. overheard them professing their love for each other. And in their little scene of the naked now homage, she was just attached to his naked body. <laughs> Yeah, and this one pays it off. And it's fun because our characters are both repulsed, but also they're like, oh, good for them. I'm glad they got there. Yes. They're happy for them. And there's a beautiful line where he says, I died and we didn't even, we haven't even talked about it. (laughs) Uh, There there is a whole bunch of stuff. Put those away, Diane. Put those away. (laughs) Oh, God, Diana's her kinky sex name. Oh, God. (laughs) 
It's in 15 seconds that this show really runs away with it. And it's like back-to-back lines. You love crime play. I love the idea that crime is such a foreign concept in the Star Trek world that they do it as a kink. They play it on the holodeck as a kink. And that's what I really love at that moment where they walk in and they can't even pronounce bank, which I I, I find adorable. A bonk. We're here in the bonk. But yeah, I would dare say we're about to talk about sex in Star Trek as a whole. But right here in Lower Decks, the comedy cartoon, I would argue, is the most healthy, sex-positive, grown-up look at two adults having sex that we have ever seen in the entire franchise history. Look, especially within recent years, especially within a lot of the new iterations of Star Trek, they haven't really been able to identify the healthiest way to present it. It's being forced in or pressured in or made more of a statement as opposed to just blending it into the story. Um, Mm. Whereas with this, it was very much a case of they went all in. It's called crime play. It is all this, and but it is healthy. They're, they're stopping what they're doing. They're talking it through, led by the male wanting to initiate the conversation, yeah. which is mixing up the gender stereotypes there beautifully. She's going, we'll do the nasty on the counter and make the hostages watch. Beautiful. <laughs> exactly. But no, there was no frustration in her or anything like that. It was just a case of, all right, this is what we need to work through. And it was done in this really healthy, positive way. And it was effectively getting them back on track to whatever they were doing. And And then Delta Shift told us later, they were making something. (laughs) They were making something. (laughs) So yeah, I have a very particular view of it. But what's your, Kevin, what's your view of sex within the Star Trek universe? I like to pick moments. And I'll take us to a first moment. And I am quite confident it is the earliest moment that we will touch on today because it is way back in star trek the original series yep okay captain kirk obviously had a reputation with the ladies we often see him seducing people or being seduced and it's all great but it is usually little more than a suave seduction ending in a kiss. Yes. This episode I'm thinking of, though, is the first time that, although only implied, it was made very clear to anyone paying attention that the deed was done. Is that what the episode's called? It should have been. This is season three, episode 13 of Star Trek, the original series, Wink of an Eye. So this is right near the end of its original run. Yeah, a famously weak season and even i would say this is a stronger episode in season three it is worth watching it has an interesting sci-fi idea in it and our characters are mostly themselves uh in this episode the ship gets taken over by aliens who have accelerated to such a speed that they move imperceptibly like our characters can't see them right move that fast and anyone who drinks the water on this planet gets accelerated to their speed as well the aliens want to take over the ship, put it into deep freeze, and use the crew of the Enterprise as breeding stock because their race is sterile, a side effect of their transition to high-speed life. And so Kirk obviously is targeted first as the most attractive, eligible bachelor on the ship. Of course. The female leader of the species accelerate him to their speed and immediately starts macking on him and going, what are you doing? 
Forget about your ship. They'll be fine without you. Come to my bedroom. On the one hand, like it's a little rapey in in mm-hmm. our modern standards. Yeah. But on the other hand, it's also very empowering to this female leader, where she has a member of her crew that is obviously in love with her, but they can't propagate the species together. And so. When he says, why do you have to follow so head over heels for this Captain Kirk? She said, allow me the dignity of liking the person that I have to choose in order to do my duty. And it is really great to see like way back in the 60s, this female leader own her sexuality, Mm. even in this kind of twisted sci-fi story. Now, the moment that makes this episode especially worth talking about, though, is that at a certain point, Kirk pretends to give in and come around to her way of thinking, and he starts making out with her in his quarters, and it gets pretty hot and heavy, and then it fades to commercial. And when they return from commercial, he's sitting on the edge of his bed, putting on his boots. And this is how they slipped implied sex Mm -hmm. past the censors. Apparently, like, this is a famous thing that if the censors had been paying attention, they would have struck that. They would have said, not even implied in our primetime television here, but they got it passed. And I would say when I first saw this episode, I was young enough for that to go right over my head. But this is the clearest time and earliest time that our captain got it on with an alien female. And it was right there for anyone paying attention. There you go. And there's some positive things in there as well, especially from a quite loaded, and that's my understatement of the year, loaded era of perceptions of women and and minorities and all that type of stuff. So to have uh, a strong female positive approach. The character and the act, neither of them are shamed. If anything, they are celebrated and empowered in this story which is really cool. And especially like considering if you rewatch The Cage, the rejected pilot, there's a fantasy moment where Pike is with the Orion greenskin dancer and it implies that he's like in the frontier trading off exotic slave girls and you go, yeah. all right, okay, this is very unhealthy. So to have within that same decade an episode of the actual series once it's got up showing that type of positivity is a really good thing. But this still, nevertheless, falls prey to the pattern that I see for most of Star Trek history, where Star Trek needed to be a PG show that kids could watch in the family room, and therefore sex had to be abstracted or implied or worked around Yes, in a way that the kiddies would be oblivious to it. Yes, but it doesn't... But it also... It still leaned into quite a lot. It was still there, and it was a plot point. This is a good place for me to come in. I've always mm. looked upon sex within Star Trek as weird. That like Star Trek doesn't know what to do with sex. It's a family show, but we also want to explore deeper themes and cross many concepts and theories of science and all that type of stuff. But when it comes down to just getting it on, they're not sure what to do with it. So it's either like the naked now or the naked time or stuff like that, where it's this disease and it's this threat. 
And if you're yeah. exploring your sexuality or your inhibitions are being lost, this is something dangerous. And so it like a, a zipping down of the uniform is a sign of the whole society of the Federation is falling apart. And if you do it, you die. Sort of like the tropes of a horror movie. You have sex, you die. If you stay a virgin, you live to the end. Or you go into the mirror mm. universe where they're all in tight leather and they're sexually liberated and they're in mm. the evil universe. So like right. in D Space Nine, Kira Narice in the parallel universe is like the ruler of the ship and she has multiple lovers and it's implied that she's a little bit bi as well. It's a bit like smoking, yeah. you know, <laughs> for a while there, if a character was smoking, you knew immediately they were the villain of the movie. Exactly. It, the vice of it was yes. the thing that they fixated on. Yes. So it always was implied that it's, yeah, it's either a plot point or it's an awkward gag at the end or where Paris and Janeway have evolved into futuristic slugs and they possibly had sex, but they're not aware of it, but they kind of are. And so it's that weird type of dynamic. And they're going, is there anything healthy within the Star Trek universe when it comes to sex? Because then when we talked about Deep Space Nine, it's all caught up in 90s politics, which is if you yeah. look at it, sexual politics in the 90s was still incredibly conservative when it came to representation. And so all oh, the big controversial moment where we have a same-sex kiss between Dax and her a former lover or something, they put in so much sci-fi babble about going, well, in that particular version, the incarnation was a male and all this type of stuff and all that type of layers upon layers instead of just letting it be a healthy thing. It's yeah. let's not talk about sex, but when we do it, it's something nasty or evil. You mentioned the naked now, and I do want to touch on that because I think that is probably the most memorable character beat based around sex data losing his virginity to tasha yar mm -hmm. and it is played so many different ways every time they come back to it the actual event in the naked now is so cringy because yes they are both or at least tasha is incapacitated with this drunken she slicked her hair back oh she slicked her hair back she showed her under boobs and um <laughs> And she she welcomes Data into her den, checking if he is fully functional along the way. Mm -hmm. But the, the most awkward part of it is the speech of vulnerability she gives first, oh, saying, God. I had to stay just ahead of the rape gangs as I was growing up as a little girl. Yes. And now what I want in my partner is tenderness, is safety. And in a way, like I can almost see what they were going for. It is sweet that this woman who has sexual trauma in her past would need the safety of effectively a sex toy that mm -hmm. would do her no harm yep. and would give her exactly what she asked for with no judgment. Data would be the safest partner for someone who had sexual trauma in their lives. It's almost there, but they play the sexual trauma for titillation, I feel. Yes. There is no more charitable an audience for Star Trek than me, so I want it to be okay. But rewatching that yesterday, I was like, nah, it is not okay. She comes in in a state of undress, in a state of sexualization, and immediately talks about her rapers. Yes. When they remastered this show, I wish they could have done a couple of rewrites in the process. There's two words that you don't really want to have combined in any conversation, let alone Star Trek. You don't want the words rape and gang 
mentioned in any way. No, not in a scene that ends the way that scene ended, certainly. Yeah, that's done at the start of a scene leading into tenderness. Like, even within this modern incarnation of Star Trek, starting with Discovery, there's been implications of one of the characters who was a Klingon and has had gone through horrible surgery to become human and implications there about the sexual dynamic there and, and manipulation and harassment. So yeah, getting to lower decks, the relationship within a holodeck program in black and white has finally shown us a healthy approach to all different types of relationships that don't just have to be monogamous within our view of a man and a woman. I don't necessarily need to see a couple having healthy sex in order to believe that they do. I don't need it to be shown. No. But when they use sex as a plot point, you're right. Their batting average is a little low in terms of when does it seem healthy and realistic versus when is it just a little off kilter? When are the writers just a little afraid to go there or just a little weird about it? Yeah, like it's the creation of the Betazoid race and their culture and how very much sexually liberated they are. Like the wedding ceremonies are done naked from what I remember. Mm. Deanna Troy's mom, obviously played by the great Major Barrett. And her appearances on D Space Nine for me were really interesting because my favorite character obviously is Odo. And so his evolution over seven seasons is always great to watch. But her first appearance, I think, believe it's season one, she perceives Odo from the point of view of she's attracted to him and she brings mm-hmm. out a side of him that he hasn't even really been aware of. He's got feelings for Kira, but his sexuality is something he hasn't really explored or understood. And so to have a strong, confident, older woman who is confident in her sexuality. Do they ever get over the line where that is not smirked at by the rest of the cast, the rest of the story? I believe in the first, there is that moment where they're trapped in the hyperlift and he has to change his form. And there's this beautiful moment of vulnerability where he is falling apart and he's got to maintain control and she just goes, let yourself go and I will protect you. And it's a beautiful, tender, but almost sensual moment as well. They let her be a well-rounded character. They let her be accepted. And he is vulnerable to her and she is the strength and holds him together. And it's a central moment. And they come back to that because Odo does start exploring his sexuality and what his, there's so many possibilities with his body, Kevin. (laughs) And there's a beautiful moment when him and Kira finally get together when they finally kiss for the first time and you get up and cheer and clap. It's so beautiful. But there's a moment where he fills her with warmth and light and fills her whole the whole space with his essence. I think that's a great moment of, it's not purely carnal. It's a sensual thing, which you don't really connect with Star Trek sensuality. There's beautiful sensual moments and playful, joyful moments with Riker and Troy in Insurrection. You know, when they're in the bath together and she's shaving him, that's really hot. I'm such in two minds of that because I think on the one hand, they accomplish something there of they let two adults be intimate, flirty, erotic with each other. And it is fun and it is sexy and it is hot. I was watching it 
with headphones on earlier <laughs> this week, and Jess, my partner, was sitting on the sofa next to me, and she was going, this is hot, and I can't even hear what they're saying. <laughs> That's a good sign. At the same time, they once again found a way to work around the acknowledgement of the act. Riker and Troy never actually commit the sinful act of having sex. They have a bath together. They shave each other. They, they giggle about it like school children afterwards. Well, we, don't, we don't see much of... <laughs> We don't see much of him shaving her. That's true. Well, you know, I it's use implied. my imagination. It's implied. It is, it's implied. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe I said that. That's what it is. Uh, that's that's got to be a deleted scene somewhere. <laughs> it's in the cut. It's in the cut. <laughs> I wanted to come back to Data, though, because that episode, The Naked Now, it ends with Yar stepping up to him and blushingly saying, it never happened. And the next time it's acknowledged is after her death. After her death, where the image of her shows up. And he, uh, I don't know who he's talking to, but he says we were... We were intimate. intimate. This is in The Measure of a Man, where he is, his humanity is on trial. That's right. And he's got the little hologram of her. Of her yeah. Which is the same pose and uniform that she appears in her funeral. So we assume it is a gift to mark her passing. But it is never addressed, this strangeness of the last words on the subject we hear from Yar herself is, I regret it. It never yes. happened. I'm embarrassed. And suddenly it becomes a cornerstone of Data's feeling of growing humanity. It is the closest, most intimate relationship he's had in his life. And on the one hand, it is sweet. But when you lean into it, it is also potentially creepy. Mm. I think we were all young enough once where we were madly in love with someone who did not return our feelings. And there, there is that moment where you grow up enough to let go of it and realize it's not just about your feelings, it's about their feelings as well. And if I continue to impose myself what I want on this person who does not want the same thing, there's a line there that shouldn't be crossed. And data seemingly crossing it posthumously is something that I am not entirely comfortable with when I allow myself to look at it up close. Yeah, and it's very much a trope of drama that lasted for decades. And it's yeah. only started, I think uh, there's even examples of it, I think I can remember from like The Office in the early noughties of that whole type of situation where two characters get intoxicated and mm. the end of the episode sting or gag, and I'm doing it in inverted commas, is yeah. it never happened. We're never talking about this again. And yeah. that's the full stop gag to end the yeah. episode. Then we restart the series seven days later with a whole new yeah, episode. Yeah, and it can put those two characters into a will-they-won't-they they state of maybe they do re-acknowledge it later. Yeah. Maybe they realize it was the start of something. It wasn't something shameful. But Tasha Yar never got that opportunity. No. Unless we tell ourselves that they figured something out off screen. Like, after that moment, there was stuff going on off screen between them that caused her to bequeath a holographic image of herself to him yeah. on her death. That allowed him to claim that connection for the rest of his... <laughs> his infinite life. Yeah, that's a lot of heavy lifting that we have to do as fans. It is. So it's a, another example of the writers going a little skewy when it came to sex, like not tackling it head on and being clear and saying, these people enjoyed what they did together. Yes. 
instead it was like these people will never speak about it again because it's shameful yeah unless one of them is dead so they can never make that mistake again and now it's allowed to be sweet again yeah again it's that case of the it's the the trap that star trek mm. is stuck into it's so procedural it is yeah. so closed off within that televisual follow the 45 minute structure then reset yeah so that arc of a character growing is denied because we have to be back at square one for next week so that they can overcome the next scientific challenge or the next engineering challenge as opposed to developing this strong healthy relationship first and then the other stuff will come the button on data's story in my books uh, comes in star trek first contact when he is seduced by the borg queen yes and, uh, they again have what could be construed as implied sex off screen, where there is a scene where they end kissing and then they come back and it is changed for the experience and that she's he's just and, had. And she's blown on his new flesh patch. Yes, exactly. But that's going back to the sinfulness, like the idea that sex is brought by the villain as a temptation. Uh, yes, and it, it, it is definitely played in that way of come over to the dark side. We have sex and pleasure over here uh -huh. where we can shave each other and we can blow each other's <laughs> flesh patch. They're my two favorite phrases that we have come across tonight. Deep Space Nine, I think, started to get it right when Dax and Worf got together. The episode Looking for Parmok in All the Wrong Places is when they finally get together. Yes. They have sex in the hollow suite and come in all bruised and battered into the infirmary afterwards. And Julian's <laughs> like, I don't want to know. I'm just going to treat you. But it is a celebrated, healthy first step into people who end up loving each other wholeheartedly getting together. And yes. It feels like finally we're here. We can have our heroes have sex and acknowledge it later and it is okay. And then they kill her off. <laughs> they do. <laughs> and then Worf has awkward sex with Esri and it gets <sighs> back to being weird again. You're right. It does get weird again. And then she gets together with Julian and then it's just weird again well the curse of season seven dropping yeah. the eight ball sometimes two steps forward one step back yeah i suppose on that front then i go into sort of like stuff like with voyager i'm just jumping yeah. around like in voyager yeah, yeah. i'm going to voyager as well because i always refer to it became a common thing with when i did my binge of voyager in my past life it was the reoccurring gag of chicote is a dog <laughs> Is he now? Chicote is always on the prowl. And there are some episodes where it gets awkward. There's an episode where Chicote and Janeway are trapped on a planet. For oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They live out a whole life together. Yes. And it's implied the whole will they, won't they? But then they get back uh -huh. on the ship. And again, we have to reset. Even though we are on this yeah. journey to get back, we have Ugh. to follow that procedural type thing. And then right at the end, they cram in this awkward, oh, yeah, and Chakotay and Seven of Nine are doing something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm so glad they haven't followed that up because it was so ham-fisted and so unconvincing. And you go, yeah, I can see why. The idea that these people who are trapped together on a ship, they will end up pairing off. It was established like from the very first episode that promise was there. The fact that it was so awkward in practice. The because there was people nothing. People we knew. Because there, there was, was nothing. Nothing ahead of Between time. the two of them. It was always yeah. like, it was always, what I loved about it was Seven yeah. of Nine was always paired with either the Doctor or Janeway or mm. the young girl. 
Naomi Wildman. That's right, Naomi Wildman. And did you channel your best Jerry Ryan impression? I did. I closed my eyes and I imagined Jerry Ryan saying, Naomi Wildman. Yeah, yeah. so it just was so crowbarred in there. You go, they have shared like three lines over three years and now we're expected to believe that these guys are flirting and it wasn't convincing at all. What's interesting around sex in Voyager for me is Janeway, the woman at the top mm-hmm. who is the first female captain. And she's established as, if not married, then at least in a long-term relationship. Long-term relationship. I don't think they're married. Yeah, her and Mark. Are, they have a dog together. So in my a, books, they're married. They have a dog and they're sharing coffee. So That's right. Yeah. That immediately, they diffuse her as a sexual being early on by giving her someone back home that she, as the captain who must be the paragon of virtue, she's trapped in needing to be true to Mark back home. And also she Uh, is trapped within that hairdo, which is (laughs) so tightly bunned and up. They get there eventually, though. She has a few awkward flirtations with prime ministers of planets along the way. And the weird hollow suite episode where she said, you know, the famous line, this is what I'm talking about. Delete the wife. Delete the wife. (laughs) Yeah, that's uh, Fairhaven season six, episode 11. That was definitely on my list. Again, nothing actually happens on screen but the moment of Janeway claiming her sexuality and saying what who am I going to sleep with everyone reports to me I'm going to use the holodeck and I'm going to like it and it is great you can see Kate Mulgrew relish the line reading and going yeah we're going there Get used to it. Oh, that whole scene where she's just looking at the hologram program and just saying, I'm going to bend this man to my will. I'm going to make the man that I want. And just when she delete the wife, oh, it's hot. It's weird, but it's hot. It is weird. It is good weird. Like they get to good weird. It's very unhealthy, obviously. But at that moment, it's, yeah. yeah. It was the 90s. Yeah. So it's just those lower deck crew members who have to clean out the hollow suites. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that was Rom's job on Deep Space Nine. Of course it was. Of course oh, yeah, it was. The, a holodeck ones that Quark has. Oh, God. Yeah. That was, yeah. <laughs> that is pure filth. Yeah, there's not a good job. We didn't even talk about Kirk and Spock. Oh, man. Don't even get me started on all the, the slash fiction out there about so many pairings within that song. Oh, we didn't even touch on Bashir and- Garrick. And Garrick. Yeah. The strongest love affair in all of Star Trek. Yeah. It's so much so like fans have written scripts that have been read by the actual actors where oh, Bashir and goodness. Garrick are married. <laughs> I love 